0: The Senate confirmation hearings for President Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, have concluded, it was quite ugly at times, and it seemed to not change anyone's vote. We wanted to talk about Supreme Court confirmation hearings and whether they have always been like this, so we caught up with Dr. Susan Bell She is a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University to get a bit of a history lesson. So to start, hearings for Supreme Court justices... They have become incredibly contentious, and it seems to me much more for show than for substance. Uh, Has it always been this way?
1: No, not really. For a really long time, the senators just got into the room, and they had a voice vote, and they all just said aye, and and there was no hearing. They didn't discuss. They didn't bring in witnesses, and certainly the nominated justice didn't come into the room. So it really was advice and consent. But um, in 1916, Woodrow Wilson nominated Louis Brandeis to the Supreme Court, who would be the first Jewish justice. He'd been a corporate lawyer. He was very, very wealthy. And he had turned into what many people call the first public interest lawyer, suing corporations. He was objected to by former President Taft, by the former attorney general, the secretary of state, the president of the ABA. There's a lot of anti-Semitism. Uh, so they held a hearing. He didn't come, but others spoke on his behalf and against him. And he was eventually put forward. Um, the first person to come in person was, was Harlan Stone in the 20s. And they just like closed the door, had a discussion, and approved him You know, the next day. And then in the 30s, Felix Frankfurter, another Jewish justice, was, was asked to come to a confirmation hearing that that's the first time somebody shows up. And that was because as a Harvard law professor, he had written a very passionate defense of Sacco and Vanzetti. Those are the Italian immigrant anarchists who were later executed. He wrote that in the Atlantic. And he also helped found the ACLU. J. Edgar Hoover thought he was like the most dangerous man in America. He was a you know Bolshevik propagandist. He had been born outside of the United States in Vienna. Again, anti-Semitism sort of looming over this. He just sat there and said my public record speaks for itself and i won't add or subtract to it And he wouldn't answer any questions and he was unanimously confirmed um and then later also in the 30s hugo blacks and uh, who had been was from alabama appointed by fdr there was rumor that he was a member of the ku klux klan uh and there was quite a dis- there was a discussion we didn't have the internet, so they didn't have as much evidence. They eventually confirmed him, even though the NAACP and others, you know, he was friends with the director, actually, of the NAACP. It was complicated. And then after the fact, they found out he had been a member of the KKK. So I guess what I would say is it was really extremely rare. And most of the time, you just give the president his pick. Um Uh, One other exception has to do with competence. Nixon had uh, uh, appointed two justices, Carswell and Hainsworth, and they had terrible rankings by the American Bar Association. And Nixon's response is like, there's a lot of mediocre people in the United States. Like, why don't they get some representation? And then he actually named all of the Jewish justices. We can't all have Brandeis's, Cardozo's, and Frankfurts, which is all like a little strange, but you know, I, I think what we can see is that there was there was prejudice about identity uh, in these early confirmation problems. Uh, another one I didn't mention was Justice Powell, and that was about his concern about like his votes on desegregation. So, so we've seen this before, but not until the modern, until 1987, when Bork is appointed, do we really see this blow up.
0: Yeah, is Robert Bork kind of the first really? To your point of the modern era, the, the Robert Bork confirmation hearings, uh, where this thing pivots forever. Uh,
1: I, you know, he's overturned, which is very, very rare. And yeah, I would I would call it one of the major pivots. Look, people were very concerned about his record on civil rights, voting rights, and also his uh participation in the Saturday night massacre during Watergate. I mean, and this was big. The NAACP got Gregory Peck to do ads and eventually um, they overturned it. Uh, Ginsburg, as you know, was nominated. Uh, Douglas Ginsburg, not Ruth Bader, uh, who it was revealed he'd smoked marijuana. He took his name out of contention and then Kennedy was unanimously nominated. So I think what you see interesting is that people were upset with Bork, but they unanimously approved the Republican president's conservative pick. Justice Kennedy. Um, And, you know, Stevens, O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they're all Breyer. But Breyer is really the last one where you see Republicans getting on board. And and after that, we start hearing more and more contention. Um, So it's not just Bork, but it, and so I would say that there's sort of two things going on. One is this idea, like, do we get our nominee? What do you have to do? Is it about what you did and your competence or the fact that you participated in something that might have been illegal? And I would put Justice Thomas in that camp, that Justice Thomas was being accused of a crime. He wasn't accused of being too conservative or having a bad judicial philosophy. I think that was the point of Anita Hill's testimony. But I think from then on, what we've seen is the parties relitigating the former hearing. So I think a lot of the testiness in this hearing has to do with the Kavanaugh hearing or the Amy Coney Barrett hearing. Um, and I think the Democrats are still upset about Merrick Garland not being given a hearing at all.
0: Is this process still serving any purpose? Because it just seems like everybody's out to get there. 15 seconds for a, camp, a campaign ad. I don't feel anybody's vote in any of these recent hearings has genuinely been changed because of what they've heard. The nominees across the board say very little because they, they walk a very narrow path. And, and I say this not knowing what would, a better way to do it, but do these really serve any purpose other than for the selfish purposes of the politicians involved?
1: I think that's a really hard question to answer, Matt. On the one hand, I actually think you're correct that what, as Ben Sass said, people are mugging for the camera. So each person is hoping to get a few seconds that they can put on their Insta or on their website or that their local station will play or hopefully national media will pick up. So both sides are trying to do that. So in some ways, what we're watching is a political performance, it's just political theater. On the other hand, I I thought of what did I learn watching these hearings for the last few days? And I think it was actually very revealing about the state of our politics. I'm not saying we should have these disrespectful Senate confirmation hearings in order to understand our politics, but I, I do think we can see what's wrong writ large with our democracy right now in that we are incapable of following the procedures that have been followed in the Senate for hundreds of years to just call the judge judge, to not disrespectfully call her she or her or interrupt or yell. Uh, I went back because we were going to talk today and I thought, I think I should watch some of those Amy Coney Barrett exchanges and a couple of, you know, the Brett Kavanaugh's to sort of remind myself. And I think that you know, you can really see a lot about American culture by looking at these hearings. You can see that Brett Kavanaugh is allowed to get angry. We generally allow white men to get angry. We see it as assertiveness. We see it as them standing up for themselves. But I think as a society, we don't believe that either women or Black Americans are allowed to be angry. There's really good research quantitative and qualitative on this in political science, uh, in particular by Dave and Phoenix, Phoenix, who wrote a great book on the anger gap. And so I I thought that was actually helpful. I think that this was very revealing about race and gender in America. But I I do think that we did not learn much about, about her. If anything, I learned that she's more moderate than I understood her to be and i would say the other thing that we learned is political i think we can see what the republican playbook will be for the midterms and for the next presidential round and last i think we saw that there's two versions of conservative republicanism that are on offer there's ben sasse's quiet respectful yet substantively challenging questioning or there's ted cruz's fist-pounding populist rage And which one of those will be more attractive to Republican voters come the next presidential election was kind of revealed there.
0: And it's uh, interesting to me that there was so much vitriol from certain Republican senators for someone that everybody agrees is qualified. There's no question on any level about her qualifications. She would be a historic nominee as the first black woman. And she doesn't change the complexion of the court is, of all from a conservative liberal. I I guess you just you almost kind of die a little inside that with all these things lined up where there's not really hay to be made from a standpoint of changing the, the balance of the court that we still had hearings that were this contentious and on some Republican centers front this angry.
1: I've read quite a bit. In the mainstream press, in which they say, like, we've always had these kinds of hearings. And I I really bristle at that. I do think that Kavanaugh was being accused of a crime, whether it was true or not, he was being accused of a crime. And that is why things uh, got contentious and he behaved contentiously. She's not being accused of a crime, she was being asked questions. So I think it's interesting that our own measurement of what is okay in politics has changed so dramatically in just a few decades. And I think that we should think really clearly about ourselves as citizens and the senators should think about their power to dial that back. Um, And journalists should also think about their power to dial that back. As you said, this was a completely low stakes appointment. There is a six- three conservative majority. This is one of the most conservative courts in the history of the United States. There is no swing vote can change a 6-3. That just changes it to a 5-4 conservative majority. So it is fascinating that in a low stakes hire with a historic candidate that the Republicans would behave as, um, disrespectfully, and I think they were questioning whether she was a true American and making her prove it with the assumption that a Black American is uh, friendly to criminals, unpatriotic in their defense of uh, p- perpetrators of 9-11. I thought it was just a really a remarkable display. Um, and and it, it, it was troubling in so many ways
0: that kind of begs the question that it is likely that the next opening that comes up would be an opening that might not change the balance. It's not going to change the balance towards a liberal court, but it will put it much more in a five, four situation. Um, and I don't say this late. I shudder to think what a confirmation hearing for a Joe Biden uh, nominee would look like in those circumstances now uh given what we've seen in this he- in this hearing regardless of who it is like you know it almost would be irrelevant who it is i think the they there would be attack lines based on something and you know if it was this ferocious in this situation uh one shudders to think what we would see there
1: well i think actually that makes the The most important point that we've hit so far, Matt, I think your question is saying, like, this was just political theater, and there was nothing judicial about it. It had nothing to do with her record. It had nothing to do with her level of experience or, you know, her who she is as a person or a family member. What this was was politics. And what we have seen in the last few years is a ratcheting up of politics when McConnell, Mitch McConnell, said that he would not allow President Obama to appoint somebody to the Supreme Court. He was going against a precedent that we have been following. Um, he said that it had to be that the next the people would choose that that we needed to have an election. And then exactly the same thing happened right before an election. When Justice Ginsburg died, and so you know, as Chuck Schumer said, this was very hypocritical, just a, a bait and switch. So once we have that, once we have the Senate doing these two cases so differently, I think what we've revealed is that the judiciary is not some special institution that is separated from politics; it's just as political an institution, and and I think we have to under, understand that. This is this, these people are not neutral. These people are appointed for reasons strategically because they hold particular opinions. The desire to overturn Roe v. Wade drove presidents to appoint more Catholics to the Supreme Court. That that was that was a strategic decision on their part. Highly qualified people, but nonetheless being picked because they will hopefully do a, take a particular vote. And, and I think this leads to the question of, you know, the expansion of the court, which is being called political. But if there's politics being created to not, for example, let the last president have his pick, Obama, then I think that it reduces all of this really to the same politics we have everywhere else. And it makes the court less, less special and protected. And that's dangerous because the court has no power of the purse, nor power of the sword, and so all it has is public opinion as its power, and the the public opinion polls are showing less and less support, less and less respect for the court. And I think I think what the Senate did was de- what the senators did; those who participated in that was was very very dangerous for the republic.
0: To that point, it kind of feels like, as with a lot of things, we're kind of hitting this un where things are untenable. We can't you mentioned ratcheting up for all these and I agree there has to be a ceiling. Like there has to be a point where something breaks and I don't know what that looks like or what, what exactly it is that breaks, but that's to your point about being dangerous. Uh, the fact that we're even having this conversation where this rhetoric, these actions become untenable, uh, kind of says a lot. What do you, you know how bad could it get
1: i think this was pretty bad um i'm not i'm not sure it could get worse because again she was what she was being accused of if we take it most generously was she was asked questions about you know sentencing etc she was asked questions about her judicial philosophy which she answered in a way that should have pleased conservatives so i think this is as pretty as bad as it gets i'm not sure i've seen Worse again in the case of the Thomas and the Kavanaugh hearings. We we're talking about a crime, and I think there's a reason to be upset about a crime and to have controversy. I think the only way for the for us to kind of take the step back from the ledge is either politically, one of the parties has to win decisive majorities in the Congress and the presidency such that they can make claims about legitimacy. So part of what was so dangerous about the insurrection was that it detracted from Biden's legitimacy. He's seen by a percentage of Republicans in the United States as not the president of the United States. Um, and, And because of that, any pick that he makes is somehow questioned. So were the Democrats in the midterms which would not be, I think, possible for them to do. If they were to win more decisively, they would be able, in fact, to to make appointments and perhaps not to have this kind of of contestation. Um, And what else could we do? I don't know. Perhaps as citizens, as journalists, as public officials, we could express our disgust with this process, but I'm not really sure that, um, what Ted Cruz did or what Lindsey Graham did or what Josh Hawley did will hurt them politically in their constituencies.
0: And we've kind of talked a- around the the judge at the center of this, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, uh, talked about the hearings, how she was treated or whatever. But this is a historic appointment. I see nothing that even if it's 5150 with the vice president breaking the tie, I see nothing that indicates she will not be uh, seated as a Supreme Court justice. While we've done a lot of hand wringing in this conversation, and we should take a moment to celebrate uh, a black woman finally being appointed and it would seem confirmed to the Supreme Court. And it seems to me we're kind of seeing the best and worst of. This country. Almost simultaneously, we've got a uh, a, a v- wonderfully qualified uh, judge who will break a barrier, but at the same time, we're seeing these actions in this political mud fighting that makes us fear for the future of the country. It's an interesting dichotomy.
1: Yeah, if I could get real positive about it, I guess what I would say is that, you know, we've had 115 Supreme Court justices, only five of them have been women and two of them have been African-Americans. She's both. And, um, you know, we sometimes talk as if O'Connor was the first person that anyone imagined as a, a, a justice on the Supreme Court. But that's not true. Florence Allen, who was thought about by Coolidge by Hoover, by FDR, by Truman, and by Eisenhower. And every time that she was put on the short list, she was there as decoration. Nobody was ever going to nominate her. And I think it's very interesting how Biden, uh, and this is something that Carter did as well, is like, how do you stop making candidates decoration that will make people feel good about themselves though they ultimately choose a white man? Well, you make the candidate pool Black women who all have these superior records. So I I thought, I I guess I would celebrate that part, that shortlisting has really been a way to demean people and make them decorative. Uh, We've done that with both Black and uh, female candidates. And so it's nice to to have this barrier broken. Uh, I also think, that there was another positive thing was that you know because she's been a public defender, though hardly for very much of her career, she was a corporate lawyer, just like almost all of the justices on the Supreme Court, but she was able to articulate why we have public defenders, that it's an adversarial system, that the constitution requires us to fight with each other, and that a judge can't make a good decision unless we have two people fighting really hard for their candidates, whether their candidates are guilty or innocent. That's the way the system is supposed to work. And that's, I think, the way that she explained that was kind of a, a high point for me, you know, um, in these hearings. And I think once they're over, she will go on the court. And um, I don't think anybody will forget this. I know a lot of women writing to each other and a lot of Black professionals writing to each other who experience what she experienced every day mansplaining interrupted not being uh, given the honorifics that you have spent your career earning to be called judge and not she to not be interrupted or yelled at so i do think that there are some people who 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 saw a sort of ugly side but they also watched her sort of rise above in this very very poised manner that i i think we all understand is a Is really hard to do. So, um, you know, in the end, perhaps we should understand her to have triumphed over all of that disrespect and for her to be the winner.